coach would come pick me up from my house at like seven in the morning and he'd drive me over to the gym and he'd have other private lessons during that time. But while he was giving those, he would just sort of stick me on some equipment and just give me like a task to do. And I would just train that. And I like all day long, I'd work on handstands and then we'd go like 7 a.m. We'd finish up probably about 7 p.m. And that was my favorite summer of all time. And welcome to Inside Out, the podcast about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there. I'm your host, Jane Z. Today's guest is Daniel Levine. I actually met Dan at none other than a murder mystery dinner party hosted by our good friend Michael Rasbuzzi. As you probably saw in the title, Dan is the closest person I know who has a serious shot at becoming an astronaut. He has training as a gymnast and a pilot and he's currently doing his PhD at MIT in biomechatronics. Specifically, he's working on prosthetic limbs. How cool is that? Statistically, NASA has chosen more MIT grads to become astronauts than any other private university. More than a third of the nation's space flights have included MIT-educated astronauts, so Dan is in good shape. In today's episode, we talk about how Dan's dream job as a kid was to become a test pilot, how he started doing gymnastics at age 13 before eventually becoming captain of Cornell's club team and men's president of the MIT team, and how he imagines a world where we interact with technology as if between friendly creatures. We also explore his time living in Thailand, in Israel, and his plans of joining the Air Force, and yes, becoming an astronaut. Dan is not only incredibly smart and accomplished, but he's also super humble and chill, as you will soon hear. Before we start, I just want to say a huge thank you to you for tuning in and supporting this show. This podcast is my dream in the making, and you guys have been a huge support with all your kind words and feedback. I'm going to be taking a break next week for the holidays and hope you're taking some time off too to eat some delicious food and spend time with loved ones, whether it's in person or virtually. We have a ton of great episodes lined up in the new year, so I will see you in 2021. Enjoy today's show. I remember one of the first times we hung out, you mentioned that you wanted to become an astronaut. Is that still your dream job? It's like a stress. It's like a stretch goal. It's like nice to always feel like there's something else you're working, you're kind of reaching for, I guess. I like to learn new skills. I like things that are really physically demanding. I like really like training really hard in a manner that's not just intellectual. And uh, I like learning all kinds of like, I guess, like how things work and how to make things. And basically, like, if you want to, it's, it's like cool to be able to imagine something and execute it in both the physical sense and like the, I guess, the making sense. So the astronaut thing is like, I really love flying and I really love planes. Um, and I kind of like where you're maybe sort of like in danger for a purpose. And so that's kind of like the ultimate version of that in my mind. Is that something that you, you know, thought about as a kid was like going out to space? I'll say that the probably my first main like thing that I ever wanted to really, really do was to be a test pilot. I must have been like four or five. And remember, I just kept on thinking about um, my, my, my childhood heroes were like Chuck Yeager and like, you know, like the Bell X-1 and then reading about the Bell X-2 and all these other like supersonic planes first people to go supersonic and of course now I know that's like the effort of hundreds and thousands of people all working together but at the time 
I was like, well, uh, so I guess we broke in the sound barrier, but we could break the light barrier. And so then we need like, what do we need to break the light barrier? And me being like, you know, little self was like, diamonds are the hardest material. So I imagine like being in a diamond plane, trying to break the light barrier. <laughs> in terms of like space itself, I thought it was pretty sweet, but um, I guess it's like flying is first. Being an astronaut is kind of like a lot of people's like childhood dream, but it's, for me, it's kind of like, in some way, like the grown up version of like putting all the things together. <laughs> Wait, so it was when you were four or five that you were like, I'm going to build this diamond airplane. And oh, I, I like, I, yeah, I didn't, though, it's interesting to think about it. I didn't imagine me like crafting the diamond airplane. I just <laughs> imagined like, you know, like getting into the diamond airplane and taking off to go try to break the light barrier. That's uh, insane. <laughs> Where did you learn that? My, my parents were really focused on like, like everything that I was exposed to as a kid had to be educational. There was some CD that was called like Aviation Adventure, I think. And it had like dossiers on all these different aircraft and the, the, the sound barrier and these different pilots. And I kind of gobbled up all, all of it. There was another disc that was included this educational thing that had some version of like a World War II flight sim, like really old. And then a bit on, a bit later on, probably when I was about seven, because it was Flight Simulator 98. Yeah, I, I guess I was really interested. My dad got me uh, like a nice joystick with uh, Flight Simulator 98. And so I kind of gobbled up a lot of the aviation, like I guess like the how to move planes and get them through spaces and stuff. You know, trying to be like, you know, like seven-year-old me uh, flying a 737 across the country and sitting on that flight simulator for multiple hours. Did you need yeah. a booster seat? It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, just fun remembering that time. And now you have a similar setup at your place, right? I have like the decked out, yeah, the decked out crazy setup. I got the, the tall joystick. I've got, I've got both a yoke and a joystick and then the VR setup. Um, the nice thing with VR is you don't have to have all the controls in your room. You just like have your virtual handles and you can actuate all the different switches inside the virtual environment as if like you're flipping them yourself. So that's cool. Whoa. It's really cool where things have like progressed. And also like cool that I was able to be born in a period where this stuff existed. So is that how you've been getting your flying fix these days? Um, mostly, yeah. Um, mostly like practice different, different things. There's like, there's like a service called Pilot Edge where you're basically talking to real air traffic controllers to practice like navigating around and landing at different airports and stuff. When was the first time you actually flew a real plane? It wasn't until uh, in the last few years, but um, it felt pretty natural from all the time in Sims. I guess there's like so much stuff out there, but there's certain stuff that makes you really like come alive and sort of be very like satisfied inside. So for undergrad, you went to Cornell, is that right? That's right. Yep. So how did you end up there and what did you end up studying? Okay, well, I guess if we go back a bit further, so in high school, it was sort of like, what do I want to be, what do I want to be doing? And like, I did have this thought that I wanted to be able to create anything that I thought of in my imagination and make it real, just like sitting in my house. I also really felt like I really wanted a job where it was like, like a mix of like, you're out in the field doing something crazy and you're, um, you know, back back home like thinking of something you could use in the field and then like making it going out there 
Um, and then also I just dislike part of myself. I really enjoy trying to help people out and do something good for the society. So let's think about all those things. And I, I really didn't know how to like make things from, from scratch and create you know, things around my imagination. I was like, how do people do that? Well, I guess in sci-fi, that's like nanotechnology. People like make things from the very bottom up into like whatever, and they've all got these like crazy qualities. So I should probably learn about nanotechnology. So then uh, I looked, well, first I did like some summer program nanotechnology and I always thought it was pretty cool. And then there was a bunch of schools that offered material science, which was like the degree you got if you wanted to do nanotechnology. So one of those schools was Cornell. And the other main criteria for me was I absolutely love gymnastics. And that was really important to me. It still is really important to me. And schools that had gymnastics in a decent capacity, looking probably like a good club team. And so anyway, so Cornell had a, had a, um, had decent gymnastics facilities and they had a good engineering program and they had a good material science program. So I, and it was also close to my grandma who's in New York. I figured I would give a stab there. So I um, went early decision there. When did you start doing gymnastics? I uh, also, I kind of late-ish, uh, I started when I was probably about 13. It's like something I like thought was really cool for a long time. I lived in Thailand for a bunch of years, basically like part of the end of elementary school, middle school, and then the end of middle school, I came back to the States. So when I came back, I was like, there's this thing I really wanted to do. And I hadn't said anything about it, but like, I'm not getting any younger. I better do it if I'm going to do it. Um, so then I brought it up and my parents weren't too thrilled, but my mom still enrolled me in stuff. And it's not clear exactly whether she enrolled me in stuff to like try to help with that or just try to get me to quit immediately. <laughs> so she put me as like 13 year old me in a little uh, kitty classes with like four and five year olds. It was like kind of embarrassing, but I was like, I'm just going to try to do this. This is something I want to do. So I think I stuck with that for like six months or so. And I would just like do all the handstand practice and push-ups and dips and everything in my room. And uh, about six months into it, we had a substitute coach who was a lot better than who had been coaching the kitty class. He, he treated it like a real class, I guess. And I had a really great time learning from him. And his name is Rashawn. We're good friends to this day. But uh, yeah, I told my mom, like, I'd like to try to get a private lesson with this guy instead of doing this, if that's okay. She was like, well, you've, you know, stuck with this for six months, you know, might as well, you know, get something out of this. So she uh, put me in the class with that, or she, she, she got me in a class with this guy. They did like privates like on Sundays. I later learned from him that uh, that first lesson or two, she had told him, try to discourage me as much as possible and try to get me to quit. And I think the first first time we did it, he seemed pretty detached, but I like did whatever he said and I tried my absolute hardest. And I did that the second time too. I think like the third time or so, he was like, you know, you really want this. Like, let's like, let's like actually try to do this. So he talked to my mom, they set up like a summer schedule. And like, even though, you know, even though my mom is like trying to get me to quit and stuff, it's not like she totally just like shut everything down. She like, she, I mean, she, she tried to be respectful of what I, you know, what I wanted, I guess. And she like tried to help out in her own way. Why do you um, think she didn't want you to pursue this? I think she was worried I was going to get hurt. And the second was, I think that uh, she didn't see it as being important or beneficial at all for my future life. I think it was not clear to her that this was actually something that would be like a long-term beneficial thing. Though in hindsight, it's like really 
done a lot for me in my life. Yeah. Well, anyway, so they worked out something where my, my the, the coach would come pick me up from, it was like right before the summer. So in the summer, my, co- my coach would, or the coach would come pick me up from my house at like seven in the morning and he'd drive me over to the gym and he'd have other private lessons during that time. Um, but while he was giving those, he would just sort of stick me on some equipment and just give me like a task to do. And I would just train that, uh, like going over to parallel bars, you just say, you know, keep working on handstands. And I like all day long, I'd work on handstands and then we go like 7am, we'd finish up probably about 7pm and they'd drive me back. And that was my favorite summer of all time. It was just like six days a week, all day in gym, picked me up in his big monster truck and, uh, you know, that gym also wasn't like air conditioned or anything. So it was like, you get in the gym, it's like 106 degrees and, you know, start instantly dripping sweat and you're just working at what you want to work at. And I had such a good time. And so by the end of that summer, I had some decent basics. That essentially got me like sort of kickstarted and um, got to make up a lot of ground quickly. And then uh, I guess long story short, I ended up getting to do gymnastics in college and like club teams um and then uh i got to be captain of the cornell team uh well, club team and then when i got to mit um i eventually got to be men's uh, or yeah men's president of the mit team and I got to teach the guys a lot of good stuff we got to compete a lot of fun of fun uh, competitions and it was really like a great time wow what's your favorite event in the sport definitely pommel horse day one i remember walking to the gym i was like i want to do that one that's the one where you do like circles and flares around. It's just like so, felt so unique. It's like kind of powerful. It's also kind of like you're floating and it's just like mm-hmm. a motion that is not present in any other place in life, really. I mean, like normal life. Circle motion is so different. Like high bar is like, I don't know, you take like maybe pull-ups or hang on a bar and you like loop it around. Okay, that's like sort of a, you can understand where that goes. Then like, how did people figure out how to do circle swings on pommel horse? that is like completely this unique and sort of wonderful, cool emotion. Uh, it's also kind of like practicing piano. It like, you just have to kind of repeat and repeat and build into your system. It's like less inherently dangerous than a lot of the other events are. When you get into the flow of it and you're just like flowing around the horse, it's really satisfying. Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what is the equivalent playground thing. Um, Cause with parallel bars, you have monkey bars. And with floor, I mean, there's like dancing and, and other yeah. things, but yeah, with pommel horse, there's not really an equivalent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know, actually maybe one reason why I think it's cool is like, like in high bar, you need to have a big metal bar and I don't know, floor, you have a spring floor. Pommel horse is kind of like, if you had a stump, you, your body just knows how to work with the stump and doesn't need to be padded or anything. Like, like the, the closest playground analogy would be the concrete, uh, cylinders by the parking lot Hmm. can't say i've seen kids do that i'd like (laughs) to (laughs) so i want to learn a bit more about your time at cornell like what would you say is notable about that time there and and how did it shape you as a person well if i think there's a cool thing about that time is that i didn't know exactly what it took to execute to, to i guess there's like and this is like a thought when I was like really little, it'd be like, sometimes you just like want something to happen. And you just think maybe like, if I really want it to happen, it'll happen. Like, like this stack of Legos, like if it like, like it'll maybe it'll fall in just the right way or like dominoes, like you flick dominoes, you expect them to all go down, but of course they never actually go down the way you think. 
and I think maybe maybe we'll sit through some gymnastics to sort of learn some about how to like take that raw like desire to do something and like make it into something that that is is, is doable or works. So Cornell was very much like that, um, where it opened up and I was just like maximum energy. We're gonna try to figure out and you know like 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 uh, learn this mathematics and like like do as best we can in gymnastics and uh, learn how uh, synthetic biology works and understand how to make things and all of this so in the beginning it was just like uh maximum energy in and not sleeping at all and just thinking that like if i like try really hard like i'll get some results and that actually didn't work that well so i, I learned that like that you have to be kind of smart about it and then i tr got to try a lot of things that i was really into i wanted to learn about synthetic biology because i wanted to know if there was like, uh, there was like ways to um, make people live longer. And I'd read about like telomeres and stuff. So uh, I joined a synthetic biology project team and as, as like a mechanical engineering student. And uh, I ended, I, I went in like that, but then I found biology very like, not, I didn't find I was so passionate about it as people around me, but I really loved doing animation they needed someone to do biological animations. And I was able to do like, I, I was able to use that as an excuse to teach myself 3D animation. And I really loved doing that. So that was just like this cool, like passion thing that arose. I had to be on project teams with the, with, or then that project team, we went out to competitions, built a really freaking cool, um, it was they call it biosensor. Um, just kind of like this machine that supports this bioreactor of engineered bacteria that the team had put together to uh, detect arsenic in water. Yeah, I got to travel around a lot with the gymnastics team. I feel like the best thing at, at Cornell was the, about, about the place was that the people were really, were, you could see all the people got there, I guess, for better or worse. But there are a lot of people that are really excited and passionate about all kinds of different things. And I would say that through a lot of it, I wasn't actually a great student. I kind of just got by and I did not completely understand why those classes were important. I think mechanical engineering I actually find really dull. But you realize later that all those sort of intuitions and basics that you go through help you just understand how things work. And that's important to like actually engineer new things. Over the summer, I was so thinking that I would end up doing a, a minor in CS. And I guess also what was just popular at the time, but I ended up taking a, a high level class from it called Algorithms with a good friend, a friend of mine, Gabe Klandorf and sort of like back learned a lot of like things needed for that class, like proofs, like in, like like proof by induction and all this. And we got through, which I couldn't have done without Gabe. And he kind of threw this, like floated this, this sort of like joking idea of like, well, we got through algorithms. We might as well, you know, you know, complete the CS major. I was fortunate uh, and I was privileged that my dad had the GI Bill. So I stayed one extra year at Cornell and I uh, did the CS major as well. And uh, I just kind of like took away all the extracurriculars and all those other like passion things for like a second and just kind of blasted through that year. Um, and I, I couldn't have gone through that without my, you know, good friends and people who really supported me. What's so cool about your background and, and just the way you talk is like, clearly you have all these disparate interests. Um, you know, you're interested in the human body and biology and 3D animation and, and all these things and design and how pieces fit together in an elegant way. Is that kind of what led you to do a master's? I think one of my friends told me about this new thing that was starting in New York City at the time, which was like Cornell, called Cornell Tech. And it was a lot about like, you know, creating 
startups. And at the time also, it still is, it's like, it seemed like this really exciting thing to create a startup. But for me also, that was like, all right, well, I've gotten all these different skills. I would like to try to take them to the world. And then when I got there, I learned a lot about that world. And that's another story. I mean, there must be a reason you didn't end up going into startups and building your own. And is that something you've thought consciously about? I guess my Cornell Tech experience was was really cool. Um, it was kind of like we we're guinea pigs in a new place. And I really enjoy that, actually. I'm just kind of figuring it out through some ambiguity. Then a large part of it was, I guess, in that environment, we were coupled together with... Uh, it was business folks, there was MBAs, um, there was you know, straight up computer science masters. And I was in this program for like information systems at times called Connected Media. And you got to see, and then also we constantly had people, like, it's like different startup people coming through and talking about their experiences in their lives and everything. Um, and I guess for me, kind of, I kind of like end up pursuing these sort of like, it feels like pure things. Like I want to learn about this. I want to execute this. I want to like know how to fly a plane. I want to know how to like physically move and do gymnastics. And I also kind of grew up in a way where it was like, what are, what are needs and what are wants? And needs are food, um, shelter and happiness, I guess. And wants are everything else. And I remember like a first day and so there was like, you know, some business class and it was like, we need to create customer needs. We, 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 want, we have to make it so that these customers will need this. I think at the time it was showing up a beer cooler with a, it was like some like smart beer cooler thing. And it was like, yeah, in this, in this case study, this company went out ahead of time and like, you know, created customer need amongst their consumers. And then when time came time to release, they already had, uh, they already created a need for it. So then you know, people purchased these things, they would be successful. And like, that really was wrong to me, I guess. But it's important for like, you know, the economy and it's important for like these, all these experimental ventures that we have some basis of people trying to create businesses and everything. Uh, and so it was like a mix. It was like, like there was a lot of people there, like startups are a way to, to deliver social impact and change the world. And then there's also like people that are like, I'm in this for me and like money is delicious. <laughs> I think one thing that I really learned about my time there was uh, you don't have to do everything yourself and it's really good if you can do something that you really like doing i think heading or like being doing like management for a startup and working with different investors and money and and i don't know all these different games for me was not what i wanted to be doing for the rest of my life even if i thought the the cause and the the result was was good but that all being said i did have an absolutely wonderful time with some mentors there um and with uh some of my good friends where we worked on a potential startup called Palette, which was a tongue computer interface for um, people with uh, spinal cord injury or paralysis, where they could use their tongue to, interate, uh, to, to uh, interface wirelessly with all the technology around them. And we had a great time prototyping and building out the, uh, I guess, like the, uh, the pitch and some of the business plan and um, understanding what people really needed for this to work. But it also felt good in the way where it felt like we weren't trying to create a consumer need for something that didn't really need to exist. Um, we were actually trying to solve a problem um, with a creative solution that was unique. There's like so much stuff I want to do in my life that's not managing a company, I guess, that I think I would feel kind of sad if I spent my whole life sort of managing companies and not like being out in the field 
or getting my hands dirty or going and being with people on the ground. And startups take roughly like 10 years to invest your life in if you want to do them well. What do you want to do? Wait, I want to hear more about Palette. That's crazy. So how, how does this technology work with the tongue-based communication and, and sensors? Yeah, yeah. So Palette, um, so we ended up turning into an open source project in the end instead of you know, going to startup, partially because I went going to the media lab and my, my um, teammates were international, so they need to get visas to stay and work in the States. The way the Palette works, though, um, is... Uh, it uses uh, three infrared sensors um, right above the tongue. So the, the pallet device is a slim, sort of like a waterproofed PCV flap, I don't recall, that, that fits onto a mouth guard and uh, sits behind your top teeth. And it uses those three infrared um, sensors alongside a microphone to let you control things uh, with tongue movements and tongue taps. So initially we set it up as a Bluetooth mouse that could control tablets and could control uh, laptop computers, um, early any computer that had a Bluetooth module. And we also had another demo where we had it control uh, via an app, uh, Spiro, which is a little robot ball. The sort of like two main cases. Uh, one case is uh, use your tongue movements uh, to control a uh, a wheeled object like a wheelchair, like ideally, it was you could power, you could control your wheeled, your uh, electric wheelchair with your tongue, or you could use it to interface technology. Did you test this with real people? We did not test this with quadriplegic users. We only tested this amongst ourselves. Um, mm. It is really sweet to be able to control like a little robot ball from your tongue. Like it just feels like you're just like, I have controls. And it, it's like, it seems like, like it should be really weird seeming, but it's actually like quite natural. Hmm. I think we would, if we, if we went to startup, we definitely would have done like more of a wide, wide scale test and or comprehensive test amongst quadriplegic users. Um, but we only did interviews. So you said before that your, your kind of philosophy around human and technology interactions, the way you see them is ideally a relationship kind of like between friendly creatures. Can you say more about that? Well, this is like what I'd like to see. I think like a lot of the way that people see technology is kind of transactional. I think actually in Japan, this is a little different. There's sort of the idea of there's the spirit of the machine. Um, and you try to create interactions as if like you're really interacting with a spirit of the machine. Like if you go to an ATM in Japan, it like talks to you and flips money in this kind of theatrical way and all this. I like, I'd like to be able to think of technology as uh, stuff that you kind of respect and respect you. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like the idea with like someone with their red truck and their red truck's been with them everywhere and is like, you know, like loaded so many times and got them through some crazy situations. And even though that truck is just a piece of technology and it's kind of like a tool, the, uh, the owner of that truck feels kind of a bond with their truck and, you know, wouldn't give it up for the world kind of thing. Those kinds of feelings, which I guess come out from being very useful and also kind of like customized that, that create that sort of like relationship as if like everything is living. Mm. So what's your version of the red truck? I think, I know, I kind of think I, I mean, like I have my own car uh, or it's not my, actually not my car, but like I, the car, my family's car. And that car has been uh, through a lot of stuff with me. So like, I'm almost kind of like, come on, you can do it. <laughs> you know, like you got this. Um, I did try to create a project when I was at the Media Lab that um, 
that that was like a balloon drone hybrid like like kind of we have zoom and we talk to each other through our computers in that version the person's projected inside this floating soft sphere and they move alongside you um as if someone's walking next to you and if you want to show somebody you can just sort of grab that as grab the sphere and and, and move them around you to show what environment looks like and that sphere is not just a bunch of keep you know keyboard buttons and lights and screens but is uh some form of living entity that's like decided to share its space with somebody else i think we've talked about this sphere idea before because there's actually a drawing of this in the children's book i made for my master's thesis i think you might have given me this idea when when i showed you the prototype story and you were like oh you know like instead of her you know facetiming her grandma on a screen like it could be a sphere kind of thing because i was projecting this world in 2047 and there was butterfly drones flying around and delivering acorns around the world um so i remember this yeah yeah like of all the technology and software that has progressed like why do we still stare at flat 2d screens all the time like why don't we have like more more human human to screen interactions i mean i think there's a lot of like pragmatic reasons like budgetary constraints and things like that but what do you think very similar um i think the reason why it's like that is because of mass production until we've made so many of the basic parts that to mass produce the wonderful next thing is uh doable everything is in rectangles and easier to manufacture pieces like, I mean, everything like spoons and forks, stamped metal that's been bent slightly, like, I don't know, compressors and pumps and wiring. And it's everything is like things that can be extruded, stamped, smushed, uh, etched in lithography. Um, and the things that are more fantastical, I think, tend to get treated like toys and tend to be more expensive, like novelty items, because they have to be formed in these more advanced ways until the people in society can really appreciate them as being like necessary, I guess. Um, And maybe, maybe we'll see more of that after the age of Zoom and the pandemic, but it might take a while still. Uh, It's partially why it's so hard to make a business with robotics, because robotics are these complex mechanisms that have so many parts that are hard to mass manufacture as one unit so far mass production hasn't uh made standard templates for these uh you know creature like technologies yet or something like that that's sort of how i see it Mm -hmm. how long did you spend in israel it was about four months were you in jerusalem uh we were in yoknam it's got it's interesting it's an interesting place there's like a little city part which is i would say it's like a it's not really like a big city or anything it's like kind of like a village like sort of a modern village and then there's a farm part which is the Moshe, the Mosheva, which is where most of the uh, spent most of the time and then there's um the city parts called elite and then there's like the high-tech park which randomly is like there's a high-tech industry park that's in between the the city thing and the farm thing so i would go to rewalk headquarters is in that high-tech park and that's where we'd go what was it like living there it was pretty sweet um i lived with a host family um they're wonderful sometimes while coming back there'd be like a wild boar hog i don't know they have this really like grunty bassy sound too actually you know there was a lot of nice events in that in the mosheva 
it was like this big gathering that was celebrating like I don't know it was like the hundredth anniversary of the the farming village or like multiple hundreds and uh, meeting a lot of residents there. Um, Yoknam is actually a sister city, funny enough, of my home of well of Atlanta, Georgia, which is really close to my hometown from Decatur, Georgia, which is just like in the suburbs of Atlanta. The coordinator that coordinates that, um, Bernice, uh, she had set it up so that I would um, you know, have like a dinner with every with each of these with a lot of different families in that community every week. Um, so I got to meet a lot of really cool people. Uh, it was one time um, a program director from Cornell Tech came over and he was a really avid biker. And I ended up biking across uh, from Yoknam to Furadis, which is like, I guess, halfway across Israel. So kind of biking halfway across Israel. I like the short way. But How the funny thing, I, um, the actual biking, let's see, I left at like five in the morning. And I also ended up taking this sort of crazy route. And I ended up going through like some firing ranges and stuff um and mostly like next to the highway and I think I got to meet him at about I think it's probably about 10 a.m and then we biked to Furadis which by that time it was I think it was probably either noon or early afternoon and then shortly after he left I was going to bike back and my tires blew out and I no. didn't bring it money I brought like I, I had like 10 shekel with me which is like like very little money. I didn't have my phone with me. I didn't have my wallet with me. But I also, I like, I looked how long it would take. And it would take about uh, nine to 10 hours walking back. Oh my God. And I wanted to see if I could do it. So I walked back for probably about seven hours. Jeez. And the last stretch, it got too dark out. And I was kind of sketchy about walking that last stretch down the highway. Then I called up my friend and then some people like saw me like probably looking pretty like, I don't know, sunburnt or something at that time. And they talked to my friend and they drove me in an 18 wheeler down to the gas station where my friend was going to pick me up. And uh, he picked me up and brought me back. And shortly after I got back, the program director called and was like, Hey, you get back fine. And I was like, yeah, you got back fine. <laughs> I was so wrecked, but it was quite an adventure. I got the worst sunburns I ever got in my life. I also, at some point in the middle there, I got, was really hungry. I was like the most hungry I'd probably ever been. And I like scrounged for that 10 shekel and I managed to buy this ice cream popsicle with gummies in it. And it was the most delicious ice cream I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Um, that's, that's all the stuff that's not even like talking about rewalk and experience with the exoskeletons and the people there and all that. Wow. That's a crazy story. And also I think it's indicative of how you are as a person, <laughs> just throwing yourself into, Hmm, let's see if I can walk this nine hours back home <laughs> and just test yourself physically. Also goes to show how safe it must've felt there. Did you feel like you would have been okay either way? Yeah, actually, in like an odd way, I felt like it felt safer than America. I feel like there's like a lot of like media images and stuff, but like the violence and like, I guess like Palestinian region, West Bank and all this stuff. And I think there probably is there, but everywhere that I went, and you do see like, you know, like soldiers around and stuff, but you feel like there's not any crime going down. Yeah. When you say like the crime and things, like, are you thinking of back home around Atlanta? Um, I'm actually thinking more like New York City. 
you know, I guess the feeling, it's not like the crime necessarily. It's just like you see people in the street and people are just like not very friendly to each other in American cities, I think, and kind of indifferent seeming. And you feel like if something happens, people are just going to keep on walking. As a Canadian coming down too, it's, but I remember my first time going to JP, Jamaica Plain, and I got off the subway and there was a bunch of police cars just hanging around. And uh, like, we were all like, oh, what's happening? And someone was like, oh yeah, like someone just got shot in the parking lot across the street. And apparently the body was still there and it had just happened. And I'm like, holy shit, like, where did I move to? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I ever had an experience like that in the city. But I generally always have like two, two pockets with like one where I have like five, I don't know, five, ten dollars where I have my actual money. And if someone comes up to me and they're like, hey, you know, basically give me money or whatever. I just take out the five, ten dollars and I give it to them. Hmm. Like, that's like that's what I got. And that happened once at like five in the morning, in like the subway. And I just kind of like marched right up to me. And I was like, here you go. And then he pretended like we we're best buds after. And I was like, wow. this is weird. But I'm glad that I had thought ahead of time and didn't take out my actual wallet. That is a smart strategy. I'm going to use that. Speaking of other countries, I didn't know that you lived in Thailand before. Yeah, my mom's from Thailand. I went to an international school. So it's like kind of less cool than going to like a Thai school over there. I think it mostly came from my mom grew up kind of poor in Thailand and was sort of a scholarship kid. She managed to get out of Thailand by doing well in school. And her, her perspective after having gone through all of that was that uh, English is really valuable everywhere. So I want you to be able to um, have good English skills. As a kid growing up there, like what I imagine is like you have access to tropical fruits and beaches. Yeah, I guess I, I do love tropical fruits. And, and we did get to have those quite often. It's like shampoo, which is like kind of this, uh, looks like a pear. It's like very juicy. It's not very sweet, but it's like very refreshing. I grew up with durian. So for me, durian doesn't smell stinky. It just smells good. And there's mangosteen and rambutan. Long and it's sort of like, there's so many, yeah, so many fruits over there. It's cool. My Thai grandma moved there from, she was an immigrant from China. Then I moved to a town called Bambuatong. It was just like quite quite dramatic how far my mom managed to make it yeah just like a lot of Thai relatives it was like nice to be able to be there with Thai relatives and you know friends around during that time um I think the thing that struck me the most which I've gotten over was when I came back to America how everything was huge people were giant and food size was giant and cars were giant roads were giant everything was just giant um it was cool to live in a different culture for quite a few years but probably definitely gave me some perspectives that I wouldn't have had if I had only lived in one place my whole life. It sounded like a warm upbringing. My family's really great. Well, let's fast forward a little bit to your life these days. So you're at the MIT Media Lab doing your PhD in, what is it, biomegatronics? I'm in the biomechatronics group. Um, The PhD is in the media lab, which means it's in media arts and sciences. So like if you have a prosthetic ankle, you want that prosthetic ankle to be able to deal with all kinds of environments by itself without you having to think about it. If we use, if we pick up sensors from your own nerve signals, they're pretty noisy. So they're going to introduce errors and you're going to be likely to trip and fall often. But there's certain cases where you like, like uh, programmed controllers 
by themselves won't be able to pick up irregularities in the environment. So like going down steps, you might have a controller that's really good at going down steps, but if there's a banana peel or a, I don't know, brick on the steps, it's probably not gonna be able to deal with it very well. So in those cases, you want to be able to assume direct control. And even if your control is like a little jittery, it'll save you from uh, that banana peel or the brick um, as you, you basically are handed the car keys and you can do your own action. And so anyway, it's that idea of switching between like fully autonomous control, your ankle's just doing itself, um, or uh, you have some, uh, you take direct control when needed. Can we talk about your upcoming future plans? Oh yeah, sure. So I'm in the middle of this PhD um, and I got, uh, after, after a few years of application process and stuff, um, I got accepted to be a pilot in the Air Force. That probably means, uh, I talked this over with my, my boss, um, my professor, um, that I'm going to be leaving the PhD before completing it and going on leave um, and then going to flight training um, for probably about two or three years. Um, after flight training, when I'm assigned a unit, I may come back and finish the PhD with the Air Force sort of uh, funding me through that. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, and then I guess some down, down the line on that list is given the engineering background and the pilot training, I would like to apply to test pilot school within the Air Force, which is probably about two years. Um, or it's a year, a year or two years. And then if I get through all that, um, I would, if I get enough flight hours and I'm, nothing's wrong with me and I have proper experiences, then I'll probably try to apply to be an astronaut. Woohoo! Yeah. And then I guess the goals there would, I don't know, there's all sorts of missions that are going on there and it'd just be cool to be part of that um, effort for space exploration. Just kind of like, it's really cool to be a, right now a part of uh, biomechatronics and the effort to um, um, improve the state of uh, prosthetic limbs and you know, like make, make it so that if you ever have an issue like this, you, you just, it's no big deal and people keep going. I really like being part of that effort uh, in terms of where I'd like to go. It'd be pretty sweet to be part of space exploration. Thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing some of your story. This has been really interesting. I've learned a lot and I hope our listeners enjoy the conversation and, and also learn something. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jane. That was fun. If people are interested to learn more or reach out and ask you questions, where can they find you? I'm not like a big social media guy, um, but you can definitely reach me by email at daniel.v.levine at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Big thank you again to Dan for coming on the show. Hope you found that conversation as fascinating as I did. I'm thinking about launching a newsletter sometime next year, so let me know if you'd be into that. You can comment on one of my photos or DM me on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane. All right. Well, thank you again for tuning in and I will see you in the new year. Happy holidays.